Were you guys exciting to get get into the book of Acts? Or excuse me, <laughs> that won't happen for a while. Get into the book of Luke. Almost forgot where I was at. That's terrible, right? Um, it is great. It's like getting Christmas in October, isn't it? I mean, if you read this week, that's what we got. We got Christmas in October. We got to start in Luke. For those of you who don't know what we're doing here at Heights is we have a uh, goal of going through the Bible in five years. And uh, we are nearly through year three. And the idea behind it is so that we understand how the Word of God is put together, how how it affects, how we see both Old and New Testament, how it's a unified story all the way through. And... Um, our studies have taken us this year through a lot of the histories, and now we have gone through the histories in the Old Testament, and now we're moving into the New Testament. Mark did a great job last week as he talked about the setup of Luke and Luke-Acts specifically, and how the, the viewpoint of this differs maybe from Matthew and Mark and John to a certain extent because it was written by a Gentile, by somebody who was not originally of the Jewish faith. And so we see that lens all throughout this account. And um, we're going to see that again today as we go through it. Uh, The title of the message today is called A Messiah for Everyone. Uh, It is Luke chapters 1 through 4, 30, which we we read this past week. And um, it's an interesting and very familiar passage of Scripture. I mean, now we're getting into the Scriptures that, that if you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with these passages. And so we're going to kind of fly through them like, I kind of know that, I kind of know that, I kind of know that. And if this is your first time through the Word of God, we pray that this will begin to start making sense to you and why Jesus is so important uh, to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 1, we see the account given to Theophilus, and he starts his story by talking about how the angel of the Lord appeared to a priest named Zechariah who went into the Holy of Holies to, to burn incense, and Zechariah is, is confronted with Gabriel the angel. And in doing so, he lets him know that he's going to have a son, that Zechariah is going to have a son. And In giving this, we're going to be going a lot back and forth into the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as we do this, uh, Luke is so uh, methodical in his notation so that people will understand that the, the promises that are being mentioned aren't just promises out of the blue, but are actually promises that are founded in the history of God's Word and through the prophets. And so in Luke chapter 1... In verses 16 and 17, as, the, as Gabriel the angel is talking to Zechariah and saying, you're going to have a son, he gives him this description of his son, and he says, many of the people of Israel will he, this is Zechariah's son, bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And what what, uh, Zechariah is hearing from Gabriel is that God is now saying the fullness of time for which these promises that have been promised in the past, they're about to take place. As a matter of fact, these words are the last quotation of the last prophet 
uh, that has been written in the Old Testament. This would be Malachi. So if you go to Malachi chapter 4, it will be the last verses in the Old Testament that you have. They will be the last words of God before he's opening his mouth again. These, these 400 silent years are now over, and God is bringing to fruition that which he wants to accomplish through Jesus. And so Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6 says this, See, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so we have a message of repentance that is going to be proclaimed by Elijah that now Gabriel is letting Zechariah know, your son is coming in this spirit. In the spirit of Elijah, this is who's promised. Because the fulfillment of these times are coming near. Okay, And he's making the way for Jesus' coming. And so we see that afterwards, Zechariah doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe that he can have a child in old age and seen as um, unfaithful. I mean, has he not read the word of God? Abraham had a child at 100 He's, uh, God is always making barren people not barren in the Bible. We see this over and over and over again. And so because of that, he's struck dumb until the time in which his son is born and he acknowledges the name that the angel said that the son would be named. But then we move over to Mary. And Mary is also given a uh, visit by the angel Gabriel. Like I said, this sounds a lot like Christmas, right? So given a a visit by the angel Gabriel. And when that happens, Gabriel says, you're going to have a child. And the difference between Mary and the difference between Zechariah, Zechariah is married and is of older age. Mary is merely betrothed, is not married, and is a virgin. And she's like, how is this going to happen? And is assured by Gabriel that the power of the Holy Spirit will overcome you and therefore you're going to conceive even though you haven't known a man. A little bit more explanation is needed and given. And she says, well, may it be as you have said. But when she's given the first, uh, when he's given the first um, announcement toward this, in verse 31, Gabriel says, you'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And again, what Gabriel is referencing, just like he referenced with Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist, is a promise of God that we have already read, that we read earlier this year. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We have David, who has promised that he wants to build a house for God. It was in a tabernacle at this time. The temple has not been built, and he had it in his mind that he wanted to build a house for God. God was so honored by that that he said, I'm going to have your son build my temple. You're not going to build my temple. But in the midst of pronouncing this blessing before David, in verse 11, he says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, and when your days are over, you will rest with your fathers. And I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for my name. And so this is talking about Solomon. But then he says this, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is the fulfillment that the angel Gabriel is talking to Mary about. That it's going to be fulfilled in Christ. That this baby that she is going to carry is going to be king of kings, lord of lords, over Israel forever. And so we see that Mary declares praise to God. We see Zechariah, when John is born, declares praise to God. And then we see Jesus being born, and shepherds and angels on high giving praise to God. And eight days later, they find their way into the temple because they were going to go and give the sacrifices that were required of the firstborn son. And so eight days into this, they find a man named Simeon, who is a man who, was, who according to the scriptures, was looking for the consolation of Israel. So in Luke chapter 2, we're going to be in a lot of scriptures today. Because I want you to see the connections. Luke isn't just narrating a story. He's saying this story is based upon the promises of God. And there are a lot of things that we need to know about those promises. In Luke 2, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he moves into the temple, and the Holy Spirit guides him to the family of where Jesus' family was. And he picks up Jesus himself, verse 28. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon is saying, this is the salvation, not just of Israel, but even a light unto the Gentiles. And where does this come from? So we go back again to the promises of God, and we look in Isaiah chapter 42, and we look at the servant of the Lord that is introduced there. In verse 1, it says, And here's my servant, whom I uphold with my chosen one, in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. We read about this servant of the Lord all throughout the latter half of Isaiah. And this servant of the Lord is very easy to identify as you read through it. We just, it just drips with Jesus. Okay? And so in verse 5, skipping down to verse 5 in chapter 42 of Isaiah, it says, And this is what the Lord God says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Take note of how Isaiah describes the one who's coming. A light unto the Gentiles, the same thing that Simeon is looking forward to. If we look forward in Isaiah chapter 49, we see some of the same things. Starting in verse 5 says this, and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. So it's still talking about the servant of the Lord, talking about Jesus. 
to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Israel and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so we see again this whole idea of the consolation of Israel is not just for Israel, but it's also to the Gentiles. And it's mentioned in more than one place saying, look, the light to the Gentiles is going to bring salvation, not just to the house of Israel. That would be too small a thing. But also to all of the Gentiles as well, so that the way of salvation will come through the servant. This is what is being proclaimed throughout these first chapters of Luke. We're being told ahead of time that this isn't just salvation for the Jews alone. This is salvation for the Gentiles as well. This is so important for you and me to understand. Because Luke isn't just saying this because he's a Gentile and he wants to say it to everybody else. He's pointing back to promises God has made to his people Israel that includes the Gentiles in salvation. Then we look in... Luke chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist has begun his ministry. So we're many years later. Jesus has already gone to the temple. He's already been there as a child. He's already amazed those who, who were there. And he's went back with his parents to grow up until he's an adult. And now we see John the Baptist and his ministry and the practical things that he's telling the people to do to get right with God, preparing their hearts for the way so that Jesus can come and they'll be ready to receive him. And we hear that at this time he's going to be arrested. But before he's arrested, he has the opportunity to baptize Jesus, have the Spirit of the Lord settle upon him so that he's identified as the one that people should look forward to. So in verse 21, in Luke chapter 3, this is what we see. And when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son. So it was thought of Joseph, son of Heli. Hang on just a second. I don't know if any of you have looked at the scriptures or, or how many of you are like, I like tedious things. I, I, like, I like knowing small little details. It's important for me that everything kind of line up right. How many of you are those type of people? Raise your hand. Okay. I'm not always that type of person. How many of you could care less? Raise your hand. Okay. Some of you could care less. Some of you are like, details are important, man. Details are so important. Okay. Well, here's one detail that often gets, gets lost and confuses a lot of people. Because if we look in Matthew's account, we see that the son of uh, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, is Jacob. You would think... That Luke and Matthew, I mean, we're not talking, we're not doing research of, you know, 10, 20, 30 generations down the line. We're talking, wait a second, don't we just know who Joseph's father is? 
right? Don't we know? Because we have Jacob over here in Matthew, and now we have um, we have in uh, Heli over here in Luke. Who's right? Does that ever confuse anybody? Anybody ever thought about that? It's like genealogies are kind of crazy things, right? Hopefully you know who your mom and dad are, right? How many of you don't know who your mom and dad are? Good, that's a good thing. All right, so here's the thing. Luke has been talking this entire time about Mary being the one who is going to be the the one who is carrying Jesus. Joseph is not the father. And so that little line in front of what is said in verse 23, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, lets you know the lineage is not that of Joseph. The lineage is that of that of Mary. Why is that important? Because number one, if you're a person who likes details, that's going to freak you out, right? I'm going to Matthew, I see one thing. I go to Luke, I see something else. Ah! Okay? That's going to freak you out a little bit. And I want to, want to calm you down concerning that. Also, I want you to understand that even the lineage that we're going through right there has a purpose behind it that harkens back to promises of God that are in the Old Testament. Because the lineage of Jesus in Luke is traced up through Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, because they're going through the kingly lineage. They're going through the Israelite lineage that happens to go through Joseph. But that's not what happens with Mary. With Mary, we see a lineage that dates itself all the way back to the very beginning in Adam, back in Genesis. And why would that be? Well, the reason being is twofold. Number one, because there's a prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3 at the curse after man has fallen. In Genesis chapter 3, when the curses are given out, when, when Adam had eaten the fruit and Eve had, had eaten the fruit and the snake was there and God comes walking and they go hide in the bushes and they're like, I'm naked! Okay, and so they go hide in the bushes and, and the voice of God is walking in, in the Garden of Eden and he says, um, where are you? Oh, we're over here. We're over here because we're naked. Who told you we're naked? Um, well, you know, that woman you gave me, she told me to eat of the fruit, and I did. And he said, what have you done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate the fruit, yeah. And so God begins to hand out these punishments, right? And when he gets to the woman's punishment... And he gets to the the serpent's punishment in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says something very interesting. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's very important to note offspring of the woman, not offspring of the man. Lineages traced through the males of the culture. And yet, here's a prophecy right right back to the beginning when you go back to Adam and Eve that there's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to destroy the work of the devil. Right? 
all the way back to the very beginning. And so when we look in Luke chapter 3, this is a hearkening back to that. It's not just a lineage for the lineage's sake. It's hearkening back and saying, look, number one, this is Mary's lineage. Number two, this is going all the way back to Adam. Number three, this is remembering God's promise to destroy the work of the devil through the seed of the woman. Because Mary is the one who conceived. It's very, very important to understand. Luke is going back and saying, guess what? All of these promises of God, the fullness of time is now. And it's going to be fulfilled through John the Baptist, who's going to make the way to prepare for Jesus' coming. The other reason why we're looking at this, and we're looking at... um, all the way back to Adam, is because if we stop at Abraham, we're only looking at the Jews, aren't we? We're only dealing with the wrongdoing of the Jews. But if we go back to Adam, we're dealing with the wrongdoing concerning everybody. It's not just Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles alike. And this is a theme that we see going through the rest of Luke. And so in Luke chapter 4, We get to a familiar passage where the devil is tempting Jesus during those 40 days in which he's fasting and giving answers according to the word of God. And and that one is is so well known, we're we're actually not going to look at that, just referencing it because we read it this week. But in Luke chapter 4, after that uh, time in which he, he confronted the devil, he finds himself in Galilee... And in a synagogue there, as he begins his earthly ministry, as he's commissioned to now go out to do what God has called him to do, he's the fulfillment of the ages, come to fruition, and this is the beginning of his ministry. It's interesting, the account that Luke puts forth for us. So in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began, to say, he began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And so the first thing you need to know is Jesus began to preach in synagogues up in Galilee. And he comes to Nazareth and everybody is speaking well of him. And he gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he opens up to Isaiah 61. And we're going to look at that in context. Isaiah 61 Verses 1 through 3. He only reads the first half of that, about verse 1 and a part of verse 2. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Doesn't that sound fairly familiar? Doesn't that sound similar to the other Isaiah passages we've already quoted? The idea of being bound up, the idea of bringing light from the darkness and those who are oppressed. I mean, listen again to Isaiah uh, 42, 5 through 7. This is what the Lord God said, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you out in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Doesn't that sound fairly familiar in both of those passages? We see this repeat that's happening. And all the people are happy. Yay, Jesus! You're going to do it! This is awesome! And then something strange happens. when We go to verse 23. In chapter 4 of Luke. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We just went from everybody spoke well of him, they thought everything was awesome, they loved Jesus, and all of a sudden, just like that, everything changed. What happened? Why were they so offended by what he said? He said, you're going to quote this proverb. Heal yourself. Do these miracles that I'm going to do in all these other places. Do them here. We actually see that in in this gospel and other gospels where that actually happens. Where they ask him to do many miracles and he can't do many because of their lack of belief. And a prophet isn't honored in his own hometown. But then he gives two examples. Two examples that we studied earlier this year in our histories. He talks about the widow that Elijah was sent to. When the sky was shut up for three and a half years over in Sidon. And it's interesting to note that this is not an Israelite woman that he was sent to. He was sent to a a lady who's there. You can find the story in 1 Kings chapter 17. And so Elijah, Elijah goes to this lady. And this lady has a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And she said, I'm making a cake for me and my son and we're going to die after that because there's nothing. There's nothing here. 
And Elijah says, make me a cake first. And so she does. And then through the pronouncement of the Lord says, all right, this little bit of flour, this little bit of oil will last the entire time this famine is in the land. Until rain hits the ground again, you will have enough for you and your family. A little bit later, the little boy that is, that is with her dies. She goes to Elijah and says, why have you come to us to basically curse us? And Elijah goes to the Lord and says, oh Lord, why, why did you allow this to happen? He stretches himself out over the boy, prays, and life returns to the boy. And listen to how this passage ends in 1 Kings 17. Verse 24, it says this, And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord that comes from your mouth is the truth. He was sent to be a testimony to her that she might come to know the living God, though she wasn't a Jew. In a time of famine for all the Jews. And Jesus points that out. The second person that he mentions is Naaman. And so if we go to um, 2 Kings chapter 5, those of you who who know the story of Naaman, Naaman is a, a man who is not part of Israel. Again, he's a foreigner. And he's a commander of a different army. And he is struck with leprosy. And he has a servant girl who happens to be somebody from Israel who says, hey, there's a prophet that I know. His name is Elisha. Go to him and he will tell you. And so he humbles himself. He goes to Elisha. Elisha gives him instruction to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. He has to humble himself again because he's like, I got better rivers up where I live. He's like, Hey, the servant girl says, hey, if he had asked you to do a great feat, you would have done it. This is a simple thing. Why don't you do it? And so he does it, and he comes up, and the seventh time he comes up, his leprosy is gone. He is healed. And so in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 18, listen to his response. And then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please Let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Remon, and to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Remon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Once you notice what's happening here, God has worked a powerful thing. He has shown that he is the only God that exists. All the other gods don't exist. I will never, ever, ever offer any sacrifice, any burnt offering, anything except to the Lord your God. Ever. Forgive me this one thing because I'm not in charge. And so when my master goes in the temple and I have to go there and he has to rest himself on my shoulder, forgive me, I'm not worshiping this God. These are Gentiles. 
These are not believers in the one true God. And God has gone out of his way in both of these instances. And Jesus points this out and says, this is what's going to happen. Though many people are not going to believe me here in Israel, though I have been sent to them, I'm also coming to the Gentiles. And they get furious with the idea of Gentiles coming to salvation because of Christ. Think about that for just a moment, because it's a theme that will run throughout both Luke and Acts. You'll see it in the life and ministry of Jesus as you do here, and you will see it especially in Acts as the offer of salvation that extends beyond what the people of Israel were willing to accept. And yet, Luke has gone right into the scriptures and shown that Jesus isn't just the Messiah for the Jews. He's a light for the Gentiles so that salvation for everyone might be in his name. That wasn't his words. That was the words that was written in the Old Testament. But the people of Israel lived at a time where Roman rule was over them. And they hated it. They hated it so much that they wanted a king to overthrow Rome because they hated Gentiles. They hated tax collectors because they thought they partnered with Gentiles. They hated Samaritan people because they thought they had crossbreeded with Gentiles. Everything about Gentiles was anathema, was hateful, was, was something they wanted nothing to do with in Israel during this time and in the culture in which Jesus lived. And there's a great temptation, I think, for us as believers in two different areas that's exposed in this passage. The first one is this. We have a culture that believes certain things and oftentimes we want to kind of view the word of God through culture because it's easier. This is how you can have a, a people of Israel during Jesus' time waiting for an earthly king to overthrow Rome because they hated the Romans so much that as soon as you started talking mercy to Gentile people, they wanted nothing to do with it, although the scriptures were very clear that the Messiah was not supposed to be a Messiah just for the Jewish people, but for Gentiles too. And you and I, we live in a time, guess what? Same thing. Our culture today says many different things are acceptable, are right, are okay. And in every instance where we compromise and we don't go along with what the Word of God says concerning those things because it goes against culture, we will find ourselves fighting against the very Jesus we hope to hold out as a hope to the world. I guarantee you the Jews never saw that coming. These very Jews in the next years we're going to see are going to be the ones who are vilifying Christ to the point of his death on the cross. And part of that offense was that he wanted to offer salvation to the Gentiles. You and I need to be very, very careful 
as believers in Jesus Christ in a culture that wants to redefine everything the Word of God says in the light of our culture today. Very careful. Because in those points in which we end up compromising, we end up compromising and no longer giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, but something totally different. The reaction that Jesus got was not one of love when he went against the culture. It was one of derision, hatefulness, and even threats of murder that would come to fruition three and a half years later. We need to be very careful as people of God that we are not compromising the straightforward reading of the Word of God just because it's convenient for our culture today. That's the first thing. But I think there's another balance on the other end of things. It's this. Jesus is offering salvation not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles. He makes it very clear in this passage. That's what he's talking about. It's interesting. He talks the Isaiah 61 passage. He could have just done the Isaiah 42 passage, but he didn't. He could have done the Isaiah 49 passage, which are very explicit concerning the Gentiles, but he didn't because he exposed, as Jesus often does, the people that everything was fine as long as it was Jewish, but as soon as I mentioned anything about Gentiles, we want nothing to do with you anymore. And the question for you and me is this. If Jesus is supposed to be the one to bring life and light to every single person that we have the privilege of coming in contact with, do you and I withhold the message of Christ because we deem that they're not ready for it? They're not worthy of it? They rub me the wrong way. They're in all of the wrong crowds. If you ever looked at somebody and said, oh, man, I'm going to stay away from them. And me and my family, we're going to stay away from them because of the influence that they might have on me or my kids. And never hold out the word of life to them. And never share Jesus. And maybe they won't. And maybe they won't accept Jesus Christ if you present Christ to them. But you and I will never know if we don't hold out the word of life to them if we don't share Jesus with them, if we've already made it in our mind that they're either not worthy or not going to listen or whatever. You don't know their heart and what God's working in them any more than I do. And when we start making that that unrighteous judgment in our life, number one, we miss out on the miracles of God, on how many people, how many testimonies are we look at that we're so encouraged. Man, God brought them from a very dark place because somebody was courageous enough to go witness to Christ who may not have thought that they were going to be receptive to it at all, but just because they were being obedient to Jesus because salvation is not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles, it's also for drug dealers, it's also for prostitutes, it's also for gang members, it's also for name any category of person you want. Salvation for everyone comes through Jesus and no other. As soon as you and I start canceling people out because of the way they look, they they talk, they act, who they're associated with, and we say they're no longer worthy of the message of Christ, we're no better than the people who wanted to throw Jesus off of the hill in which his city was built on. Because there's a very small step between saying, 
yeah, I don't think that they're ready for that message yet. And yeah, they're not worthy of that message. It's a very small step. And you and I, when we make that step, we forget one incredibly painful truth. We're not worthy of the message of Christ. Jesus didn't die for you because you were worthy. He died for you because you weren't. Jesus didn't die for me because I was worthy. He died for me because I wasn't. Me holding out the word of truth and of life to a lost and hurting world so that they might be able to follow Jesus so that he might change them from the inside out is the work of the Holy Spirit. That by the grace of God, he wants us partnering with him so that we can be the mouthpiece and the ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Not because we've got it all together, but just the opposite. Because we don't. And man, if I looked at myself in the mirror in that way, it would be a lot easier to share Jesus with other people if I knew I wasn't worthy. It'd be a lot easier to get past those, those different things in their life that other people might look at and say, they're not worthy of the message. They're not re- ready for their message. They're never going to listen to me. Forget about that. That's not about you. It's about them. And their relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have that opportunity to share with them an obedience to Jesus that you hold out salvation for every single person. Not because they are worthy, but because they aren't. And neither are you. Do you want to see God transform people? Then you can't become those unrighteous judges who assume that that person's not going to listen. It could be a family member, a co-worker, that irritates everything out of you. Like, oh my goodness, I can't be around that person. They always mention this. They always mention that. Dude, do you know what you were like before you came to know Jesus? Do you know what you're like now? Jesus is still working on me, so I know I'm not there yet. And I know you're not there yet. No offense, I just know a lot of you. And yet, by the grace of God, we are where we are, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Not because I'm not great of a pastor, but because of Jesus, because of what he's done, because of what he promises to do. That's why Luke keeps going back and saying, these are the promises of God, not the promises of man. I don't get the, I don't get the right to redefine it just because the culture doesn't think it's acceptable at this time. I don't get the right to hold it back from somebody else because I don't think they're ready yet or I don't think they're worthy enough yet. We get to hold out the word of life. That should be the goal of every single person in this room who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ. If they turn away from that message, that is not on you. But your presentation of that message to the world around you who needs to know Jesus Christ is paramount for every single one of us who call us a believer in Christ who want to offer it to in, in such a way that Jesus wants to offer because he's the salvation not just of the Jews but of the Gentiles, of every single person in the world. And you don't have a right to hold that back from anyone. And neither do I. Because it's only in the name of Jesus Christ by which people can be saved. And man, that's a glorious message.
And so we have this little balancing act to do, don't we? We have to make sure that the Jesus we're presenting is actually the Jesus of the Bible, right? Absolutely. Including the offensive parts. And yet, we got to realize we got the hope of the world that we get to share. And not everybody's going to respond in a great way toward us sharing Jesus. But you know what? I'm a sinner just like they are. I need Jesus just like I know they need Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no other way they can be saved. No other way. Me waiting for the right time? That's ridiculous. God has you there for a reason. All those friends, all those co-workers who don't know Jesus, you think it's by accident you're their friend? You're their friend for the purpose of sharing Christ. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's our promise. That's our commission. We're not let out of it. And as a believer in Christ, we need to be reminded over and over and over again that there is nobody unworthy of that message of grace. Because every one of us, including ourselves, are in need of it. And because of Jesus, praise God. Praise God. We have the good news, right? This is the good news of Isaiah 61. This is the good news of Isaiah 45. This is where the fullness of history comes together at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says, this is fulfilled today in your speaking because I am he. What good news. What good news to share. Let's not be mad that somebody else might gain salvation who used to be a really bad person. We should pray for that, right? Because we were given the same grace. Let us keep that perspective. Let's keep honoring Jesus in everything. Making sure that even the unlovely parts that the world doesn't want to hear is heard. So they can see the glorious good news that we have to share in Jesus Christ. Do you stand with me and pray? Are there co-workers, friends, family members that you have not shared the good news of Jesus Christ to because you've worried about their reaction, thought they were too bad, needed to get their life together first before they could come to know Jesus Christ? Can, can we just get rid of that type of thinking today forever? God has placed you in your friendships, your work environment, and your families to be a messenger of truth to your family, to hold out the word of truth that, ex- that exalts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to give them hope and good news, got to recognize we're we're just as wanting as they are. We really are. We need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. 
Not a single one of us are perfect. Why are we expecting it in them before they come to know Christ? Who do we need to start praying for in our workplace, in our families, in our other relationships who need to know Jesus? Who do we need to have courage to speak the word of truth to in love, not as a vendetta? You need Jesus in your life. They really do. Because before we knew Christ, we needed Jesus in ours. God, I pray today in the name of Jesus that you would help us as believers in Jesus Christ to do two things, to balance these two things. God, that we would present wholeheartedly the Jesus that you reveal in Scripture, the hope of the world, dear Heavenly Father. Because you've mentioned it in the Old Testament, you've mentioned it in the New Testament, you've mentioned it all throughout that Jesus is the culmination of our hope. Let us not water it down and present some false Jesus that doesn't exist. And God, remind us that nobody is too far gone. Nobody is beyond your reach. We have, we have witness in your word and we have witness in the world around us of people who were the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst by the world's standards who have turned their lives around because of the testimony of Christ and the boldness of those who believed with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus and Jesus alone is the salvation and the good news that we can present and that he, through the Holy Spirit, can change anyone's life. Oh, we glory in those testimonies, God. But do we believe it enough to offer it to those who we deem the worst around our lives? And are we willing to recognize that we're just as bad? God, help us, oh Lord, to give the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And help us, dear Heavenly Father, to re-explore the riches and the glory and the hope that comes from believing in Jesus Christ so that we can offer it freely, happily, begging people to take Jesus because what he has is better. May we see life, dear Heavenly Father, granted to those whom we present Jesus to. I just pray, dear Heavenly Father, we'd just be coming back on fire for you because other people are willing to listen because we were willing to share. In Jesus' name. Amen.